Hello, Bridgetown podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church give. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives to everyone was coming out into the world. He was in the world, and though he was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to who all did, who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now, John, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer and take, back to the, and take it back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of, a, of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been, who had been sent questioned him. Then why do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of the Lord. This summer, my best friend Heidi and I decided to commit to participating regularly together in being near to the poor of our city. God had begun just to stir in both of us this new desire to go where we believe he would be if he were living in Portland. And so we ended up partnering with an organization that works closely with the houseless every week. And on uh, one of our first weeks, we ended up signing up a little bit late, and we were placed on this team that was planning to do what they call walkabouts, where you carry socks and drinks and sandwiches, and you actually walk the cities, uh, the city, and particularly the, the camps downtown, and you offer these things to uh, your neighbors there. And you also offer prayer and presence and care for those who regularly get overlooked. And I have to be honest. We both thought this is not our first choice for how we'd like to engage. We're kind of wanting to ease into it, but we had done hard things before, and so we were going to do that. We settled into our post with this like wild cocktail of both nerves and joy. And as we begin to walk the streets and hand out food and drink and clothing that evening in this kind of forced engagement, I began to feel grief wash over me. And this happened as I came face to face with the reality of my own limited sight, of what I had failed to see, not only of those in our city, but of the God who lives 
among them. The camps and the people in them have been in my line of sight for 15 years now. And yet this was one of the first times that I actually saw them. We all probably have had moments like these, even this year, when something that was hidden in plain sight, whether it be big or small or spiritual or not, finally becomes visible to you, whether that's a toothbrush or the jug of milk in the fridge or the love of your life. Humans, we have this odd propensity and ability to see what we want to see, don't we? Or to not see what we don't want to see. We have this ability to limit or expand our gaze based on our preferences or our paradigms or even our perceptions, sights, or our ability to see something even if it's right before our face and even if it's wildly significant has so much to do with what we think we know about this, uh, the object or the person in our view. Seeing something rightly, not missing even the most obvious realities usually has less to do with what we are beholding and more about the posture, the context in which we are beholding that something. The question I asked God as I drove home that night from serving was, what else am I missing? What else had I failed to recognize or see that was right in front of me? Now, like Tyler said, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and it's here that we begin our journey together, a journey to Christmas. Advent means arrival, but the Advent journey, or the road we walk to the celebration of Christmas, is one that, despite the hustle and bustle of the season, will demand our attention. It will invite us to see, maybe in a new way, what is right before our eyes. But in order for us to really begin this journey, to enter into Advent, we have to actually back up from the manger and begin with two men named John. Now, John number one, or John the Apostle, Jesus' disciple, he's the guy who wrote the words that were read this morning. John was Jesus' friend. He lived with him, he ate with him, he saw him do miracles, and he was present to many of the wild events in Jesus' life, including his death. Which means that his writing is a first-hand account of what actually took place when Jesus was on the earth. And what we really need to know about John number one is that he knew Jesus. And that sets the tone and the context for what he says as he begins his book. As he starts his account of the one he both believed and knew to be the Messiah of the world, he starts it this way. God has come. He moved in, into our human neighborhood. And Jesus, he is God. He was and is the one everyone has been waiting for. He is the savior of the world. John started his book this way because for him, it encompassed the most important message of his life. Now, there's John number two, John the Baptist or John the Bee, uh, as I think we could affectionately call him. Now, he was an interesting fellow, but he was also a key figure in the life and the story of Christmas, of Jesus. John the Bee, John number two, Jesus' cousin, he lived as Jesus did, both a prophetic and miraculous life. From his conception to his bizarre death, John's life was a wild and weird uh, expression of life on earth, and yet it was deeply woven like the other John and intertwined into the life and the message of Jesus. From birth, John the Baptist was given a clear purpose, 
And that was to, as we read in the first part of our scripture today, to tell the world of this Messiah, this rescuer that was coming to set the world to right. And his goal was to ready everyone for his coming, to prepare them for his arrival. And he was to do this through the telling and the retelling of ancient promises and prophecies that would show the world how to look for this Messiah in all the ways that they were told he would come. John, as we read, was a witness to the light, to the Messiah, and he was also in many ways a disruption to the darkness. John spent his life telling the world that there was more to see, if only they had eyes to see it. Now, remember that sight does not always mean vision, and that was true for those hearing the messages from both of our Johns. When it comes to those who were meant to see the light, it's important for us to know that set against the backdrop of these messages that were being proclaimed to them stood a community that were for 400 years hoping and longing and expecting the coming of this God, this Messiah. And before John the Bee could begin wearing bearskins and eating local grasshoppers and shouting, God was here, stood traditions and rhythms amongst the Jewish people that regularly called them to look forward to this exact moment, to look forward towards another deliverance much like the one that they had experienced from Egypt. You see, this moment, this moment we're about to explore in the scriptures today, while seemingly an odd introduction to both Christmas and two men named John, was actually the fulcrum point of history for the Jewish people what they were training their whole lives to see. And yet, it seems that many missed it altogether. So today we're gonna look at this moment a little bit further and then we're gonna take inventory of our own hearts. So with that, will you look with me at John chapter one, verse six. I wanna reread this to us just to remind us of what we're about to enter into and then we'll talk about it a bit further. Verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but they did not receive him. Now here we begin in John chapter one and John number one is speaking in this kind of cosmic meta way about the coming of the Messiah. And he's drawing our attention to this historical fulcrum moment that I just mentioned. And what's weird is it's not what we'd expect. He starts out and he basically says, the light has come, the Messiah has entered the picture, and John the bee, he was sent to tell you so. But despite being ready, in a bizarre turn of events, we read that though he came when he did to the people and the world, they did not recognize him. Now, the word recognize here in our text can also be translated to know. And know here means both understanding and perceiving, and it means to know intimately, like a husband knows a wife. And so we're told here that the world not only didn't perceive God in their midst, but they also didn't know him. And this is mind-blowing in many ways, because I mean, your entire life centers around not only rituals meant to draw your attention and to ready you for this exact moment, but also you have a man, uh, many who I think is pretty weird, but he's, you know, humming around saying, this is it, this is it, everybody, and yet we read that they still didn't recognize him. 
Now, look down with me at verse 19. We don't have time to read it, but I just, I want you to meet me back there on this page. You can kind of read it as I'm talking, but make sure you're paying attention because everything I'm saying is very important. (laughs) Now, what I want you to see is that John here, our author, begins to zoom in on our prophet John the Baptist. And here we read that John finds himself in the middle of a group of religious leaders, those again who would have been trained to see and know the coming Messiah. And he begins by humbly stating that he is not the one they were looking for. He's not the Messiah himself. And we don't know why he starts this way exactly or how he found himself amongst this crew, but what we can at least speculate is that there was a bit of buzz around John's message and the religious people had to scope it out. And they drilled him and in essence said, who are you and why are you speaking this message? And in response, John in verse 23 quotes an ancient scripture with a prophecy in it. And that prophecy is about him, not to toot his own horn, but here we go. Now, now remember, these leaders would have known this scripture and they would have known this prophecy. And so as John begins to speak it out, he is doing so with quite a punch and maybe a wink, you know? Can you imagine it? Anyway, he says this, from Isaiah chapter 40, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Wink. And this was a moment, not just for the leaders, but for the people of the day. John was not only saying that he, that the Messiah was coming, but that he was here and that they could know that because John was there with them in the flesh proclaiming this truth. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy of this one voice from Isaiah 40 calling out in the wilderness. And this, my friends, should have been like a wow, you know? Like ding, ding, y'all, this is happening. This is exciting, let's let the buzz get stirring. And instead, what he gets is crickets. The religious leaders, without skipping a beat, still unable to see, fixated on getting the answer they wanted to hear. And they say, well, if you're not the Messiah, then why are you doing the things that Messiah would do, like baptizing people? To which John, I think, brilliantly responds, and he says, I baptize with water. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us, but in that moment, it meant something very significant. When he said that, he was emphasizing that his ministry only uses physical tools or rituals, highlighting that the ministry of Jesus will go beyond any rituals to actual saving power. In verse 26, John begins to wrap up this moment that is slowly uh, falling in on itself, and boldly he says, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This last phrase of this very human moment among this community summarizes not only John the Baptist's conversation with the people, but John the author's heart as well. Now, John, our author, he writes in his book explicitly about the meaning of life, the purpose of life, about this cosmic entrance of this Messiah who makes his way into the world. And in this first chapter, he basically says, don't you see it? Don't you see it? The light, the one who pierces the dark places in us and more broadly in the world, he's here. And yet at the end of that chapter, he reflects and says that nobody noticed. And then we have John the Baptist speaking into this real life community, into a community that would have both in time and place been where Jesus lived and had friendships and new neighbors. And it's here that John reiterates 
this message that John, our author, was saying in like a, a more boots on the ground kind of way. And yet, too, he recognizes that despite Jesus being in their midst, it seemed that no one noticed. And both of our Johns grieve at the tragedy found within Advent. The tragedy of a king who came and yet was missed by so many. In this great tragedy, in this season, though many of us would excuse ourselves for various reasons, we are invited to find our place. In Advent, we are called to center or recenter ourselves on the truth of what it means that God put on flesh and entered the human story, that God came near to us and that he became knowable. But that's easier said than done because the truth is in Advent, just like with an anniversary or a birthday, we will be invited to recount and revisit, even collectively remember the details of this story and where it intersects with our lives, where it collides with how we've been living and what we've been hoping for and what we've even been believing about this God that we worship. And just like in any other relationship, this once-a-year moment that we have will offer us the gift of perspective, the space to truly celebrate, but also to recalibrate, to see and consider what maybe we too have missed along the way. And that isn't always an easy thing to do, because both celebration and recalibration are messy and revealing events, because hindsight is 2020 which means that we'll have to consider what we're willing to confront and even ask in this season and how those things may actually demand a measure of honesty that could either disrupt us or comfort us. Now, in order for us to get there, to place ourselves in the Advent moment, we have to start by observing the tragedy that our John spoke to in our text today. You'll remember that we were told that both priest and the people missed Jesus. Both studied and practiced to see him, and still they did not. And the question we're left with is, why? And the answer, though fairly obvious, is one that is probably not so unfamiliar to us. To put it simply, Jesus did not come in a way that the priests thought he would or should. And he did not come in the way that the people hoped. They wanted a conquering hero, a warrior who would go against Rome, who would fight for them. Even their prophecies about him spoke of a ruler, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince who would rule and reign. And it was their understanding, their perception and interpretation of who he would be and how he would come and what he would do that ultimately led them to a blindness that kept them from him altogether. Jesus, this poor mason from Nazareth, a bastard child to most who knew him, how could he be? what they were looking for. See, it's easy for us to judge the priests and the people, at least it was really easy for me in the text as I was studying this week. I was like, you guys, so lame. Until, that is, I consider my humanity and how much it is like theirs. How I too have an expectation about Jesus, whether I want to follow him or not. And just like the priests and the people, my expectation is personal because this truth remains, this God who came to be among us is a knowable God. You too, you have an idea about who he should be and how he should help and what he should look like and what he should think like and what he should be like and how he should help you and those that you love. And again, that's not just in a cosmic universal way, that is in a personal 
way. And therein lies our problem. It is the rub for most of us. You see, we cannot divorce the journey of Advent, this story of Christmas that we find ourselves in from the reality of God's arrival, his presence in our lives. And you cannot divorce the reality of those from our text from who we are and how we too experience his coming to us. You see, some of them missed him not because he was too humble. Some missed him because they were not humble enough. And we could do the same. So how do we recognize Jesus? And what are those things, those things that live within us that might keep us from recognizing him in our midst? I think maybe a better way to ask that is how do we prepare well for this season or this coming of Jesus for the gift and the reality of his presence among us in this season. I believe our preparation starts by first confronting our real life personal circumstances and then surrendering our crown. Now I need to say something about this language. I've had a stomach bug for the last three days and this is the best I could do under those conditions. So that's what they are, all right? All right, let's get cheesy and let's keep rolling, okay? Great. So let's unpack each of these. Now, confronting our circumstances. I know, because I know a lot of you, that many of you or many of us are rolling into this holiday season with an ache deep within. You see, while Christmas is this magical time of year, it is also a revealing one. There is something about this season that, like water, it seems to find the lowest place. And for many, the declarations of God's presence and his arrival really just drudge up a reverb of frustration and pain. If God is really in our midst, then why does my life look like this? Why is my heart broken? Why hasn't he rescued me or healed me? Christmas can evoke holy imagination, but it can also provoke holy aggravation, especially for those in places of hopelessness and desperation. Our circumstances and how we perceive God in them often shadow our ability to see God in our midst. Many of you have cried out and begged and looked for God's presence and deliverance with you only to feel as though even in this season he is far off or he is too small in his coming, insufficient in how he is present. And I've been there. I think you know me well enough to know that I've been there so many times. I've been there, even this past summer, I was walking through this season of desperation, truly, that led to a little spiritual disorientation. Now, I wasn't apostate, so don't send me an email, but I was wrestling with God and where he was in my life. And that's true, that's sometimes part of the journey. And one of the most helpful things that, that, that really led me to a place of sight was a conversation, but more than that, it felt like a confrontation I had in Laurelhurst Park with a friend. And this friend listened to me as I put God on the stand for being such a failure to me. As I accused him of being indifferent and uncaring and absent when I needed him the most. And then after I finished, this friend quietly in a smattering of words I can't quite remember reminded me that God hardly ever comes in the way that we want him to, but that he comes nonetheless. And for a reason I can't explain, the reality 
That reality came crashing into my heart and it shattered the lens that blocked my view of God's presence with me. It shattered the expectations I had of how he should come or how he should be helping me and it forced me in many ways to shift my eyes back to the places that I thought he wasn't and to see where he was. And can I just say that that changes everything? When I recognize God with me, it changes everything. You see, at the intersection of our need or our pain, our circumstances, whatever they are in this season, is an invitation to see God, to find him in your midst. But there is also the potential to miss him, to allow your circumstances to be the roadblock of recognition and to reduce God to less than our expectations and to allow that to be the barometer for his presence. And if we do that, we will miss him altogether. Often the way God meets us looks a lot more messy or slow or complex than we want. I mean, look at the manger. And instead of waiting to see where he actually is, most of the time we avert our eyes and claim that he was never with us. But the beauty and the gift of Christmas is that no, what it, no matter what it feels like, he always is. Advent is for those of us who cannot find him. It is for those of us with angst and broken hearts. It is for those who carry any kind of ache or tragedy into this season. It is a stark reminder that though he may not come in the way that we expect him to or want him to with pomp and circumstance and preferably for me, an infantry, he still comes. God is personal, not prescriptive. And he has come through Jesus to meet with us to empathize with us, to suffer with us right where we are. And any conceived notion that he is not present is a lie from the enemy. He is not playing a game. He is just jealous for you to see him as he really is, not for who you want him to be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Advent is precisely for those of us in need. For those of us who need to know that God is in our midst, that he is in our darkness, and that though he may not come in the way that we want him to, he will still come. But in order for us to see him, we will have to confront our circumstances and honestly, allow him to come as he wants. Now for some, your ability to recognize God is not as much connected to your circumstances as it is your heart. You see, God's coming in Advent isn't always a comfort. For many, for some, it is a disruption. Within the story of God coming to the world is an inauguration of a kingdom and within that, a king. And when a king walks into the room or breaks into the world, all the lesser kingdoms are revealed, true or false. You see, at Advent, well, it's true. I mean, nobody said it, but that wasn't uh, <laughs> rhetorical, so yes, true. You see, in Advent, what becomes clear is that there's only one kingdom that will last, that has been, will be, and will come. And there's only one king who can rule. And for many, that's a problem. For many, it's been easy to reduce God, whether conscious or subconscious, to a helpless baby in a manger. And that has allowed us at some level to believe that there is nothing more than that to this story. 
It is shadowed, our ability to recognize his power and our ability to know him as God, and ultimately our ability to recognize him in our midst. It's easy to dismiss Jesus at Christmas if you want to, not because he isn't what you want, but because you are failing to see him as he really is. And understanding that changes everything. Even Herod, the king who was ruling when Jesus came, understood this. He knew that a king in his midst would challenge his kingdom, but also his ability to rule as he wanted to. He simply heard rumors that a king was being born from some sages in the east, and he starts to freak out. We find him living the rest of his life based on this information, struggling between power and paranoia. He even inaugurates a genocide to keep this baby king at bay. You see, Herod knew that a king in his midst would demand the giving up of his kingdom. And it is no different for us. God's arrival is an invitation for us to truly recognize God in our midst, but it's also an invitation to recognize God for who he is and who he will be when he comes again. Hear me when I say God is not an accessory to the season. He is not simply a symbol to value. He is a king to be trembled at. And the next time he returns, it will be his second advent, and he won't come in a manger as a baby. He will come on a horse with a sword. Advent is for those of us who need to remember that we are not the king. We are not the rightful rulers of our life, and failing to recognize that will cost you truly experiencing who God is, experiencing God with you. Advent is for those who need to be reminded that their kingdom and their crown have to go in order to truly see the one who has come into the world. Confronting our circumstances and laying down our crown, as silly as that language is, will be the catalyst for sight because both allow us to recognize God in our midst. Henry Nowen says this about Advent. The Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. If we are to experience this season as it is meant to be, we will have to learn to recognize the God within it. And... We'll have to confront anything that keeps us from truly seeing him. In Advent, we begin with what we can see. John, our author, tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. And that imagery is meant to tell us that his coming will illuminate something for us. It will illuminate both what we need to see and what we have failed to see. As we wait for Jesus in this season, as we anticipate his arrival, we will be invited to have our eyes opened to see him, to see the ways he is coming and has come to us already. The question we are left with is will we recognize him or not?